For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how Jesus heals. And the idea is to understand how Jesus heals in the context of we are living in right now. And yes, Jesus is one who answers prayers for healing of physical needs and many other kinds of needs. We still come to him and he still answers. But I'm trying to understand how he speaks into the things that are a little less um, concrete, the things that we feel um, that have been a struggle over this past year, but that Jesus very much wants to be an answer to in our lives. So we started with talking about how he heals us from fear to faith. And we talked last week about he moves us from loneliness and isolation into a community of believers. Today I want to talk about something maybe a little abstract, but I think very real, how he moves us from emptiness to abundance. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the goodness that you are to us, that you are faithful. You are more than enough for all of our needs. And so we ask that you will help us to understand who you are, what you do, and understand the promises you've given us. Guide us, lead us in our worship and our time together this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So have you felt the anxiety, sort of the anxiety of emptiness during this past few months and past year? Some people have had very real situations that have helped them to feel that more extreme than others. Some people have lost jobs. I have a family member that lost their job in March, only just found a job a couple of weeks ago. So that can leave you with a sense of emptiness in a whole different way, trying to figure out how to make ends meet, trying to make sure that you can keep going and uh, putting your life together while you have no work. There are others who have run into even more challenging uh, illnesses or physical problems or loss of a family member, and those always can leave you feeling very helpless and empty. But I would say that even those of us who have not had to face those more drastic difficulties, there's something about this past year that has left us drained. Have you felt that? It kind of feels like there's a hole in your bucket, right? And you just kind of keep trying to keep it filled, and yet it seems like it's constantly draining, and it just feels like life is more draining than ever before. There's a song about a hole in your bucket. Do you all know that? I'm, I'm not going to sing it. I asked my wife if I should sing it. She said no. <clears throat> I want to keep people uh, to listen. But do you, you remember that old, it's like a campfire song, the hole in the bucket? And so how do I fix it? You know, you need to use some straw to fix it. And um, how do I get the straw? Well, you have to cut the straw. So how do I cut the straw? You need a knife. Well, the knife is dull. How do I sharpen the knife? I need to sharpen the knife. I get a stone. Well, the stone is dry. How do I, how do I get the stone wet? Well, you need your bucket. Well, there's a hole in the bucket. And the song keeps going round and round. You ever feel like you're a little bit in a cycle like that? It's like I keep wanting to fill my bucket, but it keeps draining out, and I don't have a way to fill the bucket. I think it's very real for us today. 
And I believe also that Jesus has an answer. That Jesus is the one who can fill our pocket in ways that no other can. I'm reminded of the story of uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 in, Ma- in John chapter 6. Maybe we should just read that. In John chapter 6 verse 5, he, he looks up and he sees a great crowd coming toward him. And he says to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Now notice, they didn't ask. Jesus already knows the need before they ever ask. Jesus says, where are we going to get the food to feed these people? And he says this only to test Philip, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Well, Jesus says, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, not counting the women and children. And Jesus then took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. This is a great story of going from emptiness to abundance. It's a great story because here was Jesus seeing the need of people before they ever ask and he already supplies their need. And Jesus doesn't need a wagon full of food, doesn't need to bring in all the supplies from the nearest city to feed the people. Jesus feeds the people by being Jesus. Jesus can feed all of those 5,000 plus people because of who he is. He doesn't need help from anyone else. And the beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't just provide enough. He always provides more than enough. So what I want in my life is I want not just for him to patch the hole in my bucket. I want him not just to fill my bucket, but I would love for him to make it overflow so that others would be able to see that blessing and others be able to receive a benefit of that blessing as well. But I want us to understand that that the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is is a story that is over and over again told throughout the stories of Jesus, throughout the Gospels. It's not always feeding people with food, but it's about how he blesses people and fills them in ways they never expected to be filled. One of my uh, scriptures that I love is also found in Matthew 6. In Matthew 6, he reminds us that even though we may feel empty, and the only reason he would tell us this story is because people felt like there were troubles and they were empty and they didn't know what to do. And so Jesus, knowing that about them and about us, he says in Matthew 6, verse 25, he says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. For is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. 
They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? I don't know if you've tried that experiment, but I think it's not possible. Can you worry enough to add anything to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow and they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was, was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not, key words here, much more, much more clothe you, you of little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, it's important to note that Jesus is not saying to us here that he will suddenly become a a heavenly vending machine to provide us everything we ask. Some have begun to think that if if we just ask him for all the things of this world, that he will just answer our prayer. But Jesus isn't promising to make us wealthy, He's not promising to make us among the rich. Nothing wrong with having means. People work for those things. But Jesus is saying, I will supply your need. I will always be there for you. I watch over you. I see you. Like I see the birds and I take care of them. Like I see the flowers and I make them look great. I see you because you are much more than all of them. But let's be honest about this. The followers of Jesus still get sick and die. Loving Jesus does not guarantee that you cannot lose your job or become homeless or hungry. I'm very sorry, but the reality is that there are people in our community who love Jesus with all their heart and still suffer in every possible kind of way. And all of the categories that we have described Jesus isn't saying that he's now the vending machine, that he will always save us from those challenges and difficulties. But he is saying something else. Jesus is teaching us to put our trust in him because he cares for us. Our story, our distress, does not escape his constant awareness. That's what he's trying to tell us because his attention is on us. He loves us more than all of the beautiful things that he has made around us. He loves us more than the flowers that he replenishes over and over again. He loves us more than the birds of the air that he just seems to take care of and they don't have to work and store their things. Jesus sees us. Jesus knows us. Jesus loves us and he provides for us in ways that we sometimes do not measure. I love this promise in John chapter 16, verse 33. Uh, Jesus had just told the disciples that they are going to face hard times. He has just told them, this is not so long before the cross, he's told them that they are going to be scattered, that they are going to face some troubles. And his preparation for that, for them, in verse 33, he says this, I have told you these things 
so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's quite a promise. And it's an interesting promise because the promise is not for an easy life. The promise is you will have trouble. That's what this world is. This world is full of trouble. This world is a pathway that you cannot pass through without hitting bumps and rocks along the way. We don't have to be told. We all know. But the beautiful part is that Jesus doesn't end the promise by saying, in this world you will have trouble. He goes on and promises to us that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So what does that really mean? What does it look like when Jesus says, I have overcome the world? What would I expect to see as a result of Jesus' promise to say to me that in spite of the troubles of this world that I will face, I have overcome this world? What does that look like? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that John chapter 11, as John writes the book uh, telling the story of the gospel of Jesus, that he writes this chapter 11. He's the only one that tells this story, only one of the gospel writers that tells this story. John chapter 11, you probably all know this story very well, but I'd like to suggest to you that this story is a condensed version of our story of emptiness and Jesus healing us with abundance. You know the story, John chapter 11, starting in verse one. Jesus first hears about what's going on in another town. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. We've heard of them before, right? And this is Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick. He was the same one who poured, she was the same one who poured the perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus. They're friends, right? They're not just followers of Jesus, they've become friends. Lord, the one you love is sick. And then Jesus promises something. When he heard this, Jesus said, his sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now think about this for a moment. Here is Jesus' friend who he's found out is quite sick. And he says, don't worry, don't worry. He won't die. So what's the very next thing that Jesus does? Kind of important here. You'd think he's going to jump up and go heal Lazarus. That's not what Jesus does. And sometimes we get disappointed that Jesus doesn't immediately respond to what we think he should do. In spite of the fact that Jesus made a promise, he didn't jump up and immediately go over to that next town, which is just a couple of miles away. We're told that when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he says to his disciples, well, let's go back to Judea. Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews were there, tried to stone you, and, and, and now you're going to go back? So Jesus waits for two days, and then he says, maybe it's the right time. And he must have been tuned in to something because he chose the time. He decided after a couple of days, now's the time to go. Well, in the story, we find out that there was other things already happening. And when he gets there, we wonder why he waited two days. 
Now the disciples are thinking about this because they had been there and they had tried to kill Jesus. And so that's why he left. And now they're like, why are you going back? Why do you want to go now? And so Jesus is interesting. He explains to them a part of the story that they didn't already understand. He wants to explain to them what's actually happening here. He says, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. His disciples replied, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. You know, if you get sick and you need to sleep, you'll get better. That's what the disciples thought. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant a natural sleep. So what does Jesus do next? He tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He waited two days. He found out he was sick. He waited two days, promised that he wouldn't die. Now Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So you're a disciple and you're thinking, what is this? Jesus says he's going to help, and now he doesn't help, and now he wants to go and risk all of us by going back to this town where people want to kill us. So you get the response of Thomas, Thomas, known as the twin, Didymus. He says to the rest of the disciples, now this is kind of sad when you think about it, Thomas is faithful and loyal to Jesus, so he'll go, but he's not very happy about it. Thomas says, so let us all go, that we may die with him. So Thomas is a little bit pessimistic. Thomas is kind of almost in despair about having to go back. But Thomas is faithful and loyal. He says, if this is what Jesus wants to do, then let's go do it. If we all have to die, then let's all go die because we'll follow Jesus wherever he goes. Now on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Verse 18, now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Did you notice here, we usually think Mary is the one who loves Jesus the most, but who was the first to meet Jesus this day? It was Martha. Martha goes out, Mary stays home. Martha goes out and finds Jesus. And Martha, we find in this story, is full of faith. She trusts that Jesus is going to do anything and everything possible. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She believed that Jesus could heal. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha didn't know what to think of that, right? So she says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I mean, raising the dead was not something that happened every day. And even Martha, who had really large trust in Jesus and that he could do whatever he was asked, even she thought, yeah, he's dead and someday he'll come back. And Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. One who believes in me will even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. 
I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Pastor Jeff has talked about this quite a lot, right? This is the confession. She says, I believe that you are Jesus, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. And so I have put all my trust in you because I believe that that is who you are. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. And the teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And Mary heard this and got up quickly and and went to Jesus. And Jesus, who had not yet entered the village, he was still waiting outside, was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the home comforting her, these are mourners, by the way, people had gathered together to mourn with her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out and they followed her, thinking, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. They thought she'll go and mourn by the tomb. They didn't know she was going to be with Jesus. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She had faith, but she was disappointed. She felt empty because what she thought Jesus would do, he had not done. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now this is not just that he is emotionally moved. This is that Jesus is upset. He is, he is almost angry to see people acting the way they are when they knew that he was coming, when he was there. Not so much Martha and Mary, but he saw people weeping and, and two things happened. One is he was moved by their emotions. He, he felt what they felt. When they wept, he wept. Jesus was sad with them, but Jesus was also disappointed. Disappointed to see people losing faith and giving up, believing that it was all over and there was nothing that could be done. We sometimes struggle with the same thing. Though we want to be faithful and though we do believe and we listen to the promises and we believe those promises, sometimes what happens is that the drain keeps draining us over time and our buckets don't stay full. And it's the weight. It's knowing that Jesus could be here now, but he hasn't come yet. It's believing that Jesus could heal and make everything well anytime, and yet for some reason he waits. And we don't understand. And it's the waiting, the drawing out of time that causes us to become troubled and weep. And Jesus is troubled by our weeping. He weeps with us because he's sad for us, but he's troubled by us because he wants us to have hope and faith in him. Jesus saw, when Jesus wept, the Jews saw him weeping and they say, see how he loved him, talking about Lazarus. And some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Where's the faith? So they were expressing that Jesus must have his limits. See, he, can, he can't do this. 
He could make a blind man see, but what can he do for Lazarus? There's nothing he can do. And Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, as often was done in those days. And he says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. In other words, this guy didn't just go to sleep. He's not in a coma where he's going to just wake up. He's been dead a while, and he's starting to putrefy. It's a very ugly scene. He's been there for four days. Don't open it. And Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this kind of out loud for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And the story ends very short. Not a long, drawn-out story. We hear all the stuff that happened before, but here's the end of the story. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The end of the story. A few moments ago, I asked you the question, what does it look like when Jesus says, I have overcome the world? What should I expect to see when Jesus says, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome this world? This is what it looks like. Because Jesus has overcome the world, he is able to speak and bring Lazarus to life. When Jesus heals us from our emptiness and our desperation, it is not just to clothe us like the flowers of the field. When Jesus comes to heal us from our emptiness, it is not just to feed us like the birds of the air. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And how does he end our emptiness? How does he fill our bucket? He fills it not with food, not with clothing, not with dollars in the bank, not with some tangible thing that we often would just use up and waste, possibly anyway. Jesus fills our emptiness and our bucket with one powerful thing, his kingdom. His kingdom is eternal life with him. He is the resurrection and the life. He fills our emptiness with who he is. Like on the day he fed the 5,000, he didn't need the loaves and the fish. He gave them what they needed that day because he was Jesus and he gave them Jesus. And he fills our emptiness today by giving us who he is. So let's not lose faith while we wait. Just when it seemed like Jesus would do nothing for Lazarus, just when people were ready to give up and thought it must not be within his power to deal with him now because he's already died. They thought he had waited too long. They thought Jesus couldn't help. 
Jesus shows up in the midst of the weeping and more than healing, more than restoring sight to the blind, more than repairing a shriveled hand, which he had only done a couple chapters earlier, more than giving new strength to legs. Jesus gives new life. Jesus raises the dead. What could be more abundant than the promise of the life that he has the power to give us? He can do all those other things. Anytime he decides that it is for his glory and for the good of us, he can do all those things. But there is one thing he has already done. And sometimes it goes without observation. He has already given us new life. He has already given us the kingdom. What could be more abundant? than the promise of life that he has the power to give us today. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. For is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you well as well. Like Lazarus waiting in the tomb, his bucket as empty as they can get. Do you hear Jesus calling you? Come forth and live.